0: Welcome to another episode of No Need to Ask podcast. I am your host, Amani Duncan. And the topic of this episode is the journey of a records man. Hi, Jaha. Welcome to No Need to Ask podcast. Hi, Amani. Thanks for having me. How are you doing today? I'm doing good. I have no complaints. I don't want to date us, but...
1: I know, because we're so so young, (laughs) but yeah.
0: But seriously, like over 20 years, I think. Um, Wow. We met uh, when I was at Def Jam and you were, uh, what were you doing? You joined Island Def Jam, right? Correct. Okay. And that was probably the mm, late 90s? That was in 1999. Oh, so exact. Wow. Um, Okay. So, you know, tell us, what were you doing um, back then when we were at Island Def Jam? I think you were always on the creator side, but why don't you walk the listeners through like your role back then? And, you know, why did you want to go into the creator side of the record business?
1: I mean to to kind of take it back to even how we even got to Def Jam, um, I'm originally from New York, born and raised in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. And I was decided for me to go to college. I specifically wanted to go to HBCU, um, just inspired to just be around more people that look like me. I mean, mm-hmm. yes, grow, grow up in New York was diverse and and of course, I had friends from all walks of life, but there was something about the black college experience that I wanted to, to have. And at that time, Atlanta was really bubbling. And I went to Clark Atlanta University, a couple of friends of mine who decided to go down there, and I started interning at LaFace Records, which is where it kind of all started for me. You know, at, around that time, I was just hustling, interning at LaFace. I interned at Dallas, Austin, and Rowdy, started um, promoting parties and just... My my friends and I there was a there was a whole contingent of us back then, uh, Chaka Zulu, Jay Irving, um, uh, uh, Coltrane, Shakir Stewart. There were a lot of us that were had just newly come to Atlanta, and we're just trying to figure it out. And Atlanta was a, a great melting pot city because it kind of sat in the middle, uh, which which makes it unique. And it was only one of the only colleges where four black universes were on the same campus, Morehouse, Spellman, Morris, Brown, and Clark. Mm-hmm. And I started originally on the promotion side. All my internships were learning how to promote and promoting parties and in the promotion department of record labels for Shanti Daz and so on and so forth. And I'll never forget one day, um, I, w- I was also doing an internship for these radio pools for RCA. I didn't like some of the records that I was that I have to promote, that I have to literally call radio stations to promote. Right. And uh, I remember I came back to LaFace and I, young intern, didn't even know L.A. Reid, you know, on a personal basis. And I stopped him in the hall and I said, what do you do if you don't like the records that you have to promote? And he said, he said, there are only two sides of the business that really matter. There's the people who make the pizza, which is the creators and the A&Rs, and the people who deliver the pizza, which are the promotion people and the marketing people. And he said, if you don't like what you have to sell, then you should go learn how to make it. Mm. And that was like, that was it. That was like that one moment of, you know, he probably doesn't even remember the conversation. (laughs) It kind of crystallized everything for me. And I just dug into trying to find out what it meant to be an A&R and working with producers and developing talent. And uh, shortly thereafter, I joined up with, um, some friends called Noontime. That was a collection of um, Ryan Glover, Chris Hicks, Terry Ross, Henry Lee, Shakir Stewart, or myself. Some had come from Howard, some from Oakland. Shakir was at Morehouse. I was at Clark, and we started this production company, managing producers and developing artists. And uh, that quickly led to us working, you know, with artists on Bad Boy and RCA mm-hmm. and Quest Records, and we ended up working on. Um, a soundtrack for Def Jam at the time that Tina Davis was working on um, it it was before they have, oh, How to Be a Player.
0: Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Shout out to Tina Davis. Right.
1: And uh, that's that's where the Def Jam relationship started. Um, And from there, just learning more about being A&R here was this black woman who was like running this A&R department at this historic hip-hop record label, and it was just eye opening. So you know, from that time at the face to now working with producers and seeing Puff and then now meeting Tita Davis and Lior and Kevin Lyles and the whole crew over there, it just just kept sparking the fire in me more and more to want to be on the record side. Mm-hmm. Um, and after some time just building relationships and hustling, Lior Cohen offered me a job to come on board and specifically work on the R&B side of Def Jam, because uh, as you know, Mm -hmm. after the Island Def Jam merger, you guys inherited um, some R&B artists. We did. One being Cisco and Drew Hill. And at that time, most of the A&Rs, they did mostly hip hop. So it was myself and Jojo Brim were the only two guys there that specifically did R&B. So that kind of became my niche, Um, working with Cisco and Drew Hill, Kelly Price. That's right. One Twelve. So I just kind of became known for, as the R&B guy at, uh, <laughs> at Def Jam. We started a division called Deaf Soul, along uh, yes, with Kevin Howell, Kevin Lyles and Music Soul Child was signed mm-hmm. to Deaf Soul. And um, that's, that's where it all began for me.
0: I mean, that's a big move, I and mean, you just kind of just glossed over it. You know, I it mean, reminds me of my days of when I just would always bother Kevin Lyles. Like I was, I was fearless back then. And, and I think a lot of people today, especially a lot, a lot of young people today, they, you know, when you tell them these stories, they can't even imagine, you know, just approaching these, these huge Titans in, of the industry. Um, so what, like, what made you feel so confident to just walk up to LA Reed as an intern and have that conversation with him? That really was pivotal, pivotal in your career.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, and, and that's an important point you make. And I think whether it was then, you know, I can give examples of, of today. You know, there there are young creators like a young, young man named Justice, who's part of uh, Love Renaissance. And, you know, his spirit reminds me of that. It's like, you know how he approaches executives. Like, you know, I, I cold called Big John back, you know, back then and Angelique Miles when she was a publisher or walking up on Liora Coleman or Russell Simmons. Like, that's what we had to do. And I that's think, right. you know, if you want to be great, you can't be scared to engage, right? You you might get some doors slammed. You might get some shrug-offs and, you know, people not willing to give you the time. But, you know, I, I find that... <clears throat> You know, the people that you're approaching, that's usually how it got, how it got them there, right? Is somebody stopping to take the time to give them the information. You know, I always say that information is free. What you do with it is on you. Mm-hmm. You know, some you know, L.A. could have given me that same game and it could have went completely over my head and I could have, you know, just left the music business. But for me, it, it sparked something in me. And I feel like every interaction, every conversation, whether, you know, no matter whether someone thinks it's big or small, um, whether I'm talking to an intern, a random person in a store, um, a, a big executive, an artist, I don't take any interaction or conversation for granted because that's, that's where the inspiration comes from. It comes from different perspectives and, and just kind of, you never know what conversation is going to inspire you or trigger something inside you to, to write something, to create something, to have a new idea. You know, that's, that's the beauty of, to me, the world, right? You know? It's funny kind of to kind of bring things full circle, not to really go off subject. But when we look at the times we're in with COVID, I think one of the biggest things we've missed is that human interaction. Right. Like mm-hmm. I think that I think the world has learned how to adjust with platforms like Zoom and just right. and, 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 um, and FaceTime. But there's something about the, the genuineness of just having a casual conversation or deliberate conversation that sparks an idea. Mm -hmm. And, you know, specifically entertainment, specifically in music, it's all about inspiration. It's all about conversation. That's where the greatest songs come from. That's where the greatest ideas come from. I mean, how many times have you come up with a great award show performance or video concept just based on conversation with, with the talent, with other executives, with your peers? Like that's, that's what we live off of. That's the lifeblood of, 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 of of our businesses is, is, is that type of engagement.
0: Agreed. Agreed. We're so instrumental in bringing R&B for the label to the forefront. And then I remember, oh God, maybe a few years later after we met, you had an opportunity to go to London.
1: Can you tell us more about that? So about a year and a half then, I think it was 2001. Um, at that time, obviously Def Jam's superpower was, was hip hop. And, um, But there were other labels bigger. You know, Columbia just had these huge pop stars or Interscope had huge rock stars um, and they had Dr. Dre. Um, There were other labels that were more global. Arista was more global at the time and Def Jam being kind of like this little engine didn't have that same reach. And Lior had just this global vision for hip-hop and this global vision for the label as a whole. And, you know as we all know him not scared to mm-hmm. take on any new task he's like i need our music in all those markets i need our artists to want to go over and back then a lot of domestic hip-hop artists didn't want to travel they felt like exactly. it was a whole other world like i'm not mm-hmm. going to london what what, what <laughs> do they eat over there like they eat food <laughs> you know what do they speak over there they speak english <laughs> right um <and laughs> so there there were there were a lot of unknowns about the world back then that don't really exist today and uh, he created this this committee, and we took a trip. We went to Japan, we went to Germany, and went to London. And he wanted to meet with our partners in Universal in those prospective markets about how do we get Def Jam thriving and, and kind of more engaged than just like you know you're a subsidiary who picks up our record and promotes one or two records here and there. He wanted a real presence in those markets, and he felt. For London, he wanted one of us there. He wanted somebody who lived it, who breathed it, who understood um, the kind of the ethos of the Def Jam culture to go there and and set up shop. So he tapped me to move to London with, uh, you know, this young kid, 20 something years old, to build Def Jam in London um, with a skeleton staff inside. We were housed inside of uh, Mercury, Mm -hmm. which was also under the, the universal um, umbrella at the time. So there were some services that came with that, no different than a joint venture. Right. And, uh, I moved over there. We, um, I hired a young man named Semtex who's went on to be- become one of the premier DJs in London as my, um, urban promo guy. Um, hey, th- there was a young lady, um, Mariam, who did marketing. And then, you know, I, I functioned as kind of the label head and the, NR source, so we wore, you know, typical to our Def Jam in <laughs> New York, you wore multiple hats. You know, I'd, I'd be up in the day taking meetings, going to MTV, going to radio, and then I'd be out looking for artists. Mm-hmm. And um, and I, my, my role was two things primarily, was to to sign domestic talent in London and to also bring over our U.S. talent and make sure that they felt well taken care of and understood the importance of promoting in that market. You right. Know, back then, you know, like I said, Columbia was Santa to Mariah Carey, Destiny's Child. I mean, those artists were there weekly working, no different than a promo trip to North Carolina. And a lot of other artists, specifically black artists were not coming over there. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So I was responsible for bringing Jay-Z over, bringing Ja Rule over at that time. We had Christina um DMX. I don't think, no, DMX didn't come, but Ja Rule, Ja Rule and Jay were two, like, were big ones because Huge. they they were somewhat resistant, but they also understood the importance of it. So Absolutely. it felt good for them when they landed to have a, a familiar face that they knew that, you know, kind of knew the nuances, how they like to move, what worked, what didn't work. And, and it, it was an education process on both sides of the pond, right? It's an education process for our artists, just learning that there is a bigger world out there. right. And that this world buys records and they are (laughs) fans. And you have to touch them the same way you touch, you know, the the states. And it was the education process for the U.K. marketplace, just understanding that, like, there are some cultural nuances and you have to be mindful of it. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. sometimes, you know, reporters in other countries can be very aggressive at that time, you know, or, you know, the taste and tone of certain interviews. Right. Just like just working through those things to really kind of bridge the gap. So that was So that was my function. Um, That was a big part of my function was kind of opening that up. And at that time, you know, there were no other Americans from um, living in the UK working in the music space.
0: Wow. So you were really you were breaking down barriers and you were opening doors for others. I mean, when you think about it, Jade probably had never, right. He's never, he never went to Europe before that. No. So you really, yeah, you really opened the gate for him and so many others to broaden their reach. And I mean, he's over there all the time and it never stopped. So how long were you, were you working over in the UK?
1: I was, I was there for two years and, and listen, like, you know, like anything, especially when, when you're in the beginning of it, it had its frustrations, right? Like there was, there was so much I appreciated about the UK marketplace. I'm, I'm, to this day, I'm still glad I did it because it gave me um, a lot of knowledge and information. And, and I've always, I've always looked at the world as kind of, you know, my playground, right? Sure. I don't, I don't, I don't ever want to be limited in a box and only know one thing. And I always say, don't, don't judge something you haven't tried. A lot of people say, Oh, Oh, I hate this country. Have you been there? No. Mm-hmm. Okay. So how do you hate it? Right. So right. I've, always, I've always been mindful of, before I pass judgment on something to at least try it. And there's an amazing, um, culture in the UK. I mean, amazing talent, some amazing songwriters, amazing producers, um, amazing executives. I mean, when I was there, you know, darkest was still Mm. in the early days of his career, but you know, I, I, I regard him as one of the best executives out there, period. He has some of the best taste. Um, and it's, it's not just in one genre, you know, at that time, Lucy range was running the publishing company and was just moving over to take over universal UK completely. All right. So there've been some amazing things that come out of the UK and their appreciation for soul music and urban music and their understanding of art and culture is amazing. But on the other side, there were things I didn't like, you know, Mm -hmm. there was just somewhat a, a, a lack of respect for black executives and black music as you moved up the chain, because it just, you know, this was a country that was built on pop music It was built on the Beatles. Right. right. It was that, you know, it, at that time it, it wasn't what it is today at mm-hmm. all. Mm-hmm. So, you know, here's this young black American coming over here mm-hmm. telling them how to, how they should be in the music business. And right. You know, that was met with some resistance. Um, So there were frustrations there, but like, like anything, there'll be frustrations. It's nothing that, um, if I had to do it all over again, I would do it again. Great. Because I think it was important. I think that it opened up a lot of conversation. I mean, there are so many peers and friends I have today that started then, you know, if it wasn't for my time there, I wouldn't have a relationship with Tim Blacksmith or Mm -hmm. so many executives and and artists and writers and producers that, you know, as I was coming up, they were coming up then also. Mm So,
0: so a little bit like are you talking about the traditional label structure there was resistance with maybe an American coming in and giving his or her purview on how to market and promote and develop artists? Yeah I think
1: specifically on, on the label side of course there were some executives you know I I, I credit Lucien with understanding the importance of you know American black culture music I, I credit you know there was there was there were definitely executives you know that I met there from other labels that definitely understood it. I think overall, it was new. It was just new, and they didn't they didn't get some of the taste and tone. You know, for example, I remember, you know, why does Jay Z have to stay at this hotel, or why you know why do we have to spend this much on dinner? Right. It was a very different conservative approach, but they didn't understand it. This part of the culture, as you know, it's not just. You know, these things are authentic to the artists, right? That's Mm -hmm. if Jay-Z was spending his own money, he's going to stay at the hotel. So if you want him to come over here to promote, to sell records, which ultimately helps your bottom line, then you've got to appreciate this is how that artist moves, right? So it was like conversations like that that I had to have that weren't even a conversation in the States, right? It wasn't even like... It was Kevin was like, go get Jay-Z two cases of Cristal. It's not. (laughs) Why, why are you asking? (laughs) Why
0: isn't it done already?
1: Why isn't it done already? So (laughs) it was, it was what I say was distance. I mean, just like having to explain why these nuances are important that today, you know, they get. right. Back then it was. It was, this is ridiculous, this is too much money, why does this cost this, and why do we have to spend this on that? And and I was just like... Mm.
0: I so remember those conversations back in the states we would hear about them and we're like what are these people talking about like this is the way it gets done this so, is how
1: this how it gets done and we came from we done. came from the get it done
0: label <laughs> absolutely by any means necessary you need to get it done well it sounds exciting I love London I've spent a lot of time there and I agree there's there's so much talent that continues to emerge from from the uk tiny tempa like the list just goes on and on and it's just uh-huh. I'm so glad that you had that opportunity to to spend that time there at S- so let's fast forward to today. Um you're currently the head of A&R at Hitco Records. Um let's let's talk a bit about that. I'm as you know, personally obsessed with one of your artists, Saint John. He is just incredible. Um so talk to us about Hitco. Like how did that even come about?
1: Well, first thank you for all your support, you know, in your in your MTV life, you were definitely at the oh. The Thank head of you. the table, um, you know, fighting for an artist, you know, again, you know, a lot of times people don't understand, right? And I'm pretty mm-hmm. sure that there's probably executives there now looking like, looking back, like, yeah, we were, we were on it, like,
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, were okay, you, okay, okay. were Every, you? Everyone was on it. Now that it's yeah. number one, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it, it's funny that you know my life with Hiko is kind of brings me full circle back to working with LA Reed. And it was at a point when I, after my last label experience, said, I did not want to do labels anymore. You know, I had, I had a great one at Def Jam. I always call that those my college years. And um, then went on to Interscope Geffen for four years. And it was amazing. It wasn't it was it was the same family vibe, but, you know, I had a great boss in Jeff Ralston. I got to work with people like Polly Anthony and Jimmy Iveen and work with amazing talent like Mary and Common and Floyd yeah. and Mose and Kweli. Absolutely. But, but you know, the, I feel like towards the end of that run, it was when the, there was a shift in the, the label, the kind of label energy, whereas artists were becoming more independent and labels were were hiring what I call less creatives. Right. It was more just operators. And you, you saw the rise of 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 artists that just kind of like insulated themselves with their own team, their own video people, their own A&R people like the managers were just way more on it. And it's it, it kind of drew me into management. You know, I looked at our peers, like G Roberson, who was in, was a, was a labelist, like an A&R Rockefeller. And and you, 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 you take all that knowledge and you said, well, every artist is their own record label. I can do it. And, you know, I, after, you know, several years managing, you know, Usher and Mary and Common and and Brandy and, and Tank and Dream, you know, you, you learn how to do everything, you know, as, as, You know, when you when you work at a record label, it could be the greatest record label in the world. It's still a job, right? Still, it's still there's still the end of the day. There still is no allegiance to one artist. You know, your 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 allegiance is to the label. But when you're a manager, it's it's 24 seven. It's no matter what it is, from personal and professional. And I actually really enjoyed that because it sharpened me up. It gave me way more skill sets in my tool chest that I've never had, right? Like my understanding of touring and film and TV and publicity and just like um, um, branding. So it, it well-rounded me. Um, and I think it prepared me for him today with, with Hitco because this is this is the first time since LA had LaFace Records that he has a startup. And mm-hmm. in today's world, a startup has to operate more like a management company. Like Absolutely. you have to be able to roll up your sleeves and do everything. You know, we didn't. We're not. We didn't start. You know, under some major. We started as an independent with, you know, a thirty-person staff. When we first started, it was me, La, our CFO, his partner Charles. It was four or five of us, and we just, you know, we were we signed St. John before we even had our office. Wow. Like, we were still wow. working from you know studios and, and hotel lobbies as offices.
0: Very reminiscent um, of early Def Jam days.
1: Exactly. So it, it's it's been great because I feel like had I not had all those years and experiences as a manager, I would not be prepared to do what I'm doing now, and I love it. Um, I think it's I think it's great. I think it's the future. I think that, and you know, in a, in a funny turn of events, I think that record labels have again become more important. than They've been in a long time because they've been forced to really step up, you mm-hmm. know, because you're now in competition with the artists. You have to prove to the artists that you can bring value to their careers because artists don't need you. And the artists now can make their music go straight to Spotify, go straight to Apple, go straight to YouTube, right. go straight to MTV, straight to, to Jimmy Fallon. Like an artist does not have to be represented by a record label to have some of the same um, opportunities that their, their counterparts do that are signed. So, Do you see that <clears throat>
0: same awareness in the younger artists?
1: Absolutely. They they are, they are more in tune than ever before. They, and, you know, thanks to the internet, they are, are just way, they're, they're so informed. They're, they're mm-hmm. clear. They, you know, they can look at these numbers every day. They can go to Spotify and see which artists are moving, see which collaboration is moving. I mean, and there's so much data available, you know, wh- you know, what are the artists top five markets? That's public information on Spotify. Right. Right. right? So. Um, it, artists have, have, have more access to information. It's cheaper to do everything. It's cheaper to make videos, cheaper to make songs. So an artist doesn't have to have this huge recording budget or, you know, they don't have to have these huge budgets that we got accustomed to, to be a contender in the game. Um, so I think there's the artists there's so much power in our artists hands now more than ever. And, you know, as we learned from, you know, one of the, one of the most valuable things Lore Lior ever told me was your power comes from the artists, right? Like it's your ability to be associated and move the talent because our business is based on them. <laughs> you know, we don't sing or dance, right? So right. <laughs> if, if you can't move the talent, then what's your, what is your true value? Right. And, um, you know, that's even more relevant today than ever before, because what's your true value if if an artist like Drake can do everything himself, then if you're on his team, you have to bring some real value because mm-hmm. he's already showing you, I got this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I know yeah, what I I'm can doing. make a phone call. Right. right. You know what I'm saying? So, um, yeah, as, 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 it, as it brought me to Hitco, it really forced me to, you know, what's my value? You mm-hmm. know, how, how, how does this company matter, right? Yes, LA is one of the greatest record men ever, you know, and... How do we support that once we sign the artists and we make the records? You know, how do I use relationships like yours and call MTV? You know, that was, that, that's providing value, right? The artist didn't have a relationship at the, at the, at the network. Or how do I put value, you know, any, it, once again, back to my manager days, it's like, okay, I could pick up and call Jesse Collins or, or Julie right. from Fallon. Or, you know, when St. John wanted to be front row at Kirby's Pyramar show, he called me. Right, I, I was able to make that phone call to Kirby directly, make the introduction. Like right. you have to be able to
0: provide value because if not, the artist is going to figure out on their
1: own, and then they don't need you.
0: Exactly, exactly. So, other than Saint John, my all-time favorite artist, what what are you really excited about coming out of Hitco? Oh, so so
1: much. I mean, I feel like you know, now that we've got our first two years behind us, and we're in our third years, you know, like like any startup, we've We've made our mistakes, we've kind of reviewed the reviewed the game tape and and we're we're so much better now. I mean, we're we're really seeing Yellow B Z starting to blossom. Uh, one of one of our early signings out of Dallas. Um, we have a young lady named Bjornick, R and B singer out of Chicago, that's amazing, that's gonna shock everybody. Um, we've got this new pop girl, Chelsea Collins, that's amazing also. Um, we have this amazing singer songwriter Delacy. I mean it's I It's just so much that, you know, so much that that's kind of moving into its second phase, some things starting in their first phase, you know, um, that we're really excited about.
0: So, you know, recently, I, I mean, you get the question probably as much as I get the question. But recently, this young lady called me and she wanted some advice. And the advice obviously was how to get into the music business And when I asked her, well, why do you want to go into the music business? She went on and on about how much she loves music and how she loves to attend shows. And I, you know, I had to kind of gently tell her those really aren't reasons to (laughs) go into the music business. We all like to go to shows and we all like, uh, you know, music. So what advice as a records man who's been, you know, who's had a very distinguished and, and interesting career journey. What's the one piece of advice you would give to someone who wants to work in the music industry?
1: You know, that's a great question. And, and, and I'm, I'm going to try my best to sum it up in one answer. I think it's start with what do you love and then why do you love it? Right. Um, and that could sound vague, but it's it's really not if you think about it, right? If exactly. if you say you love the music business, well, what do you love? Do you love the visuals? Do you love videos, right? If you love videos and study videos, right? Like, look at them. What do you love about them? you Love the way they're shot. Do you love the storytelling? Do you love the people that put that together? Um, do you feel like you're more of a creator or an executor? You know. It starts with really having honest looks in the mirror and saying, "Okay, what am I great at, or what do I think I have the potential to be great at, and how does how, how does that apply to my love of whatever piece of the business that I want to get into?" And you don't have to know that answer out the gate, right? You it you know you start as an intern. I start as a promo intern before I figured out I love the A and R. Right. You, right. Can, you can bounce around. That's there's nothing wrong with that. There's, you can you can try a lot of different departments and see. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know what you may not know anything about, you may end up loving, right? right. But but it, it has to start with the pure love. I knew I loved music, and what I always loved, what it, what it goes back to me is, you know, eighth grade. I'm on a rooftop in Brooklyn, and this girl plays is going through her mom's record collection, and she plays Donnie Hathaway a song for you. And I remember in that moment how that song made me feel right? It was just like, it was a feeling. And I said at that moment, I want to be responsible for giving people that feeling. So how do I do that? Right. I remember the first time I heard a song I was involved with on the radio and how it felt and how the people around me reacted. Right. So, so it has to start with something pure, like what's the feeling you want to give people? And then what's your contribution to that? Right. Mm-hmm. It doesn't, you know, for me, it was, it became a it became, it became the balance between creative, and an execution, like okay, you identify the talent what's your, what's your point of view in it? what's your objectivity? you know are you finding them the right producers, the songwriters? Is it your conversation that sparks the song that they sing? you know, and how do you how do you evolve on that? so my answer is start with what you love, and then start at the ground level, just intern, just pay attention, look at everything, turn over every rock, and find out what you like and what you don't like and and it will reveal itself as mm-hmm. you
0: do. it. Mm-hmm. I agree, as you know, I started as an intern working under Tina Davis uh-huh. and I did ar admin and then went on to do promotions and then video promotions, and then found what I really loved, which was marketing uh-huh. so you know we were we were lucky we were able to work in almost every department that we wanted to work in uh, at a record label to really fine tune what our passion points were and so you know i just don 't know to, in today 's environment. If interns or people that are just starting out in their careers have that
1: flexibility, it still exists it's it listen, I think um <clears throat> some of the rules have changed and the requirements of being an intern and so on and so forth, but a true hustler figures it out right I That's still right. Have, I still have interns, there are still people that you know you see interning at a management company. I mean, I always credit you know our brothers. Jeff Dixon and Chaka Zulu. Listen, yeah, absolutely. ETP has fostered more executive talent just out of their little office in Atlanta than a lot of people, right? That's like, right. Love Renaissance, um, Amber Grimes, so many people that just came from there, mm-hmm. right? Just mm-hmm. being around. Um, and we, we all have stories like that. There are interns that I've had or people that worked for me that, you know, when Eve Pierre was an intern at Rockefeller and then came to work with me on the management side and, I I forced her into the agency side. I said, "You got to go to ICM." I don't, right. I don't know. I don't know what that is. I don't know. I don't. Well, you're going to try it, and now she loves it, right? So it's 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 if you want it, the opportunities are
0: there. That's right? true. It goes think. back to that hustler mentality, right? Yeah, that that never changes. That never
1: goes away. I see it today as clear as I did when I started.
0: Amazing. So let's segue out of uh, the record man story, and you know, I was pleasantly please, when I came across an article that you wrote, um, which is up on Medium, and I will send that link out to everyone, it, which will be in the podcast, and it was entitled, Why I Run, uh-huh. and it's it was a letter to your son, so you you have a teenage son, um, you know, it's needless to say, my heart is, is weary, um, I think we are all a bit weary, but energized about the injustices that are... You know, at the forefront at this moment, I mean we <laughs> injustices against African Americans or black people has been ongoing for unfortunately decades but um right now we're we're in the middle of a lot of unrest, um whether it's from covid to um george floyd and the list goes on and on, and so I remember um, walking in my neighborhood maybe a couple of days after George Floyd was, was murdered. And I came across a young African-American boy on a bike and we spoke to each other. And I said to him, maybe a little too passionately, be careful out here. And I started to to cry. I mean, I felt it so, so deep in my heart. Um, so as a conscious and righteous father, like, how are you preparing your son to deal with the world that we live in today? And how do you keep him encouraged to be a part of the change that we seek?
1: Yeah, listen, it's 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 um, you know, as you know, being a parent, you know, every day is is a new test, is a new day. Um, I think, you know. For me, the the uh, motivation behind that riding, you know, uh, it's been about maybe five, six years now, um, I had a really bad surfing accident, um, ironically, um, after I just did a cross country father-son trip with my son, um, that, uh, that was, you know, one of those eye-opening moments. And uh, I'll never forget that um, after my surgery, Against doctor's orders, of course, because I'm hard headed. <laughs> um, I'm on a flight with Kamen to Tokyo for some shows, and I'm still in a lot of pain. I'm maybe days out of surgery. And Kamen, someone had referred to him uh Tahanasi coaches Between the World and Me at that time. And he kind of was telling everybody on the team about it. And I'll never forget that plane ride from LA to Tokyo, I read the whole book. Mm-hmm. And it um, it was basically a letter to his son. Mm-hmm. And it kind of spoke to, spoke to the times we're living in right now, which is nothing new that, you know, obviously we've been dealing with this for 400 years plus. Indeed. And uh, when I landed, you know, between reading that book and the thought that, you know, my accident could have, you know, seen me no longer here, I said I need to be able to write to my son because I may not always be around to give him some of the games, some of the lessons, some of the information just about being a man, about, about love, about relationships, about being black. Um, and you know, I thought about, you know, my father wasn't there and there he, he, there was no one there to tell me those stories. And while I am in his life, you know, I have to make sure I'm giving him the stories. And I, you know, we talk and obviously teenage boys and, you know, black men. We don't. We sometimes we don't communicate the best. You know, father-son conversations aren't, you know, always as fluid as they should be. But you know, once you write it down, it's always there. And um, so I started writing then, and then I kind of I would come in and out of it. I shared some of my, some of my writings with my friends. Like, you should write a book. And um, you know, fast forward, I was I was inspired again recently after the passing of um, our friend Andrew Harrell to start writing again. Because I just said, you know, that's part of my purpose, right? Like, we all have a role to play. We all have a purpose to play and change. And, you know, like any other culture, storytelling is our currency that you pass forward, right? It's like, you know, the Bible is this book that we all reference. We weren't here to write it right like but we're all we're all here to take inspiration from it we're all here to, it gives us something to model our lives after and that's to me what writing is it's like it gives people kind of road maps it, it gives people inspiration information um so um after i wrote you know kind of this letter to andrew harrell and just what the importance of, that he had in my life um i was then inspired by the george george floyd and where we are again we find ourselves again today And I said, let me write to my son, because, you know, while while we've had these conversations, we've talked about it. I mean, I remember clearly having conversations with him when he was 11. You know, don't wear your hoodie on the bus. Mm. Um, You know, keep your hands out your pocket. You know, don't talk back to the police. Um, Like, you know, if you're with a group of friends like we I've kind of given him you know, the how to live guide for being a black boy and that you have to do it over and over and over again. Right. And you know, now he's 14, he's going to high school, you know, he lives in a, you living in a fluent neighborhood. You know, he goes to school with, you know, most of his friends are white at his school. Nothing wrong with that, but he needs to understand that he'll be judged differently. You know, if you and your friends get stopped, there's a, a great probability that they're, they're going to view you as a problem before they view them, even if you're doing nothing. Um, so, that's kind of what inspired the letters. It's like just a constant reminder, you know, it's not about preaching or beating him in the head with information, but just constantly reminding him, like just because it hasn't happened to you yet, doesn't mean it can't happen. And exactly. I think that's, that's what, you know, I had to deal with racism early on in life and I, I had some of my own encounters and, you know, he hasn't had some of those experiences yet. So, you know, you try to give him, you know, no uh, you know, some some lessons you learn by doing, some lessons you learn by listening. Right. You know, like I learned that irons are hot by touching the iron. Right. <laughs> the, my grandmother said, Don't touch the iron. Right. <laughs> you know. You I had to touch that. it. <laughs> I had to touch it. Is it really hot? <laughs> so um, you know, I think that's that's kind of what the impetus of, of my writings was.
0: Well it, it was it was simply beautiful. It really was. And it touched a lot of people. And, you know, I hope you continue to write because, and I can't wait for the book because you definitely have a profound story to tell that will touch a lot of people. So if anyone wants to read up on Jaha and and the beautiful articles that he has written to date, go to medium.com and look up his name, Jaha Johnson. So before we end this amazing conversation, because you and I could talk forever, Tell the people what are you reading right now.
1: Um, well, I'm rereading James Baldwin, um, "The Fire Next Time." I feel like it's very, uh, very timely. <laughs> Absolutely, um, it's really good. What are you listening to? What am I listening to? Um, yes, of course, I'm always listening to to my artists. Um, I'm a uh, um, I, I get lost in jazz constantly. Like I love Kamasi Washington and Robert mm-hmm. Glasper and Christian Scott. Um those are those are some of my favorites. Um and I listen been listening to a lot of like like my old Jodeci and Tribe called Quest. Absolutely. Um but yeah, I kind of I kind of bounce around in, in in those spaces.
0: After the Versus um 112 versus um uh, Jagged Edge. Jagged Edge. I had to dig out the 112 album, and I was like, there, there are like so many hits on that. Woo! I mean, that's that's what music does. Sometimes you have to go and revisit something that was uh, at the bottom of the crate. That's right. But listen, Jahat, I cannot thank you enough for participating and for being so open and sharing your journey with us. I know a lot of people um, will benefit from your words appreciate you always supporting me. Friends, we're at the end of No Need to Ask podcast with Jaha Johnson. Until next time, be well and be safe.
1: Thank you.